Welcome to the Beautiful and True Project podcast. This is a place where we talk about beauty and truth, the things that are most important to us, the things that ground us, and the things that uplift us. My guests are not celebrities. They are, in many ways, leading kind of ordinary lives, but they pay extraordinary attention to the world around them, and that makes the difference. Many of us, maybe even most of us, don't give a lot of conscious thought to our identity, or to the various identities that make up how we see ourselves. We may have familial identities, mother, son, aunt, grandfather, and what that label means to us is so different from person to person. We may have an identity that is connected to what we do for a living, or a hobby that we're passionate about. We may have an identity that is linked to a particular group, or religion, or political party. And we definitely all experience our age, our race, our sexual preference and gender expression, our socioeconomic status, as part of our identity, whether as something we boldly claim for ourselves, or as something that has been put on us by others. Our identities the various things that come together to make us who we are, are as unique to us as our fingerprints. The more I talk to folks, the more I ask questions about beauty and truth, and especially about the intersection between the two, the more certain I become that part of what we're all talking about has to do with our deepest sense of identity, our deepest sense of self the way we define ourselves, the values and beliefs that make us who we are, how we move through the world, and also how we hope to move through the world. My guest this week has made a lifelong study of identity. Delia Kropp's first outlet for her fascination was as a portrait artist, then as a performer and actor, and most lately, as an activist and advocate for the trans community. Talking with her about beauty and truth is a masterclass in the self. She is a straight shooter and a deep thinker. She has a sharp, delightful sense of humor, and I could have talked with her for hours. We range through the very real difference between beauty and truth, the standards to which trans women are held, and, of course, the nature of identity and self. It's a gorgeous, deep conversation with a phenomenal woman, and I hope you find yourself as fascinated as I was. I am so excited to talk to you. I can't even, I can't even begin to express it. Uh, welcome. Thank you. <laughs> That's where I talk, right? <laughs> well, you, <laughs> you can, or if you pause long enough, I, I guarantee that I will step in and fill it. Uh, it's nice to talk with you, Jen. Um, I, don't, I don't know you super well. We met at um, a women's group, and I have just liked you from the moment I saw you, basically. 
you have always struck me as somebody who is very passionate, very interested in the world, very compassionate. And um, I, I thought this would be a great conversation. Well, thanks. So this podcast is about the beautiful and true. And I sent you some questions. And one of the things that I found interesting is that you pushed back a little bit on the idea that beauty equals truth. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really, really great thing for me to spend a moment talking about uh, because maybe possibly my listeners also think that I equate beauty and truth. And I don't actually, I think they can be and often are very separate. There are things that are absolutely beautiful, but not at all true. Uh, You're a theater artist and Mm -hmm. have been, I'm certain that you have seen shows that are gorgeous and don't have an ounce of truth in them. Well, let's start right out by defining our terms because the English language isn't really up to the task of of, (laughs) of describing some of the most important aspects of our existence. And I'd say truth and beauty are definitely things, you know, that fall into that category for me. You are so right about that. Yeah, I'm going to define truth as something objective Mm -hmm. that we strive to get closer to in our understanding that it's an absolute that's out there that that in most cases whether it's a understanding of physics or of uh, human nature or Mm -hmm. how (laughs) what what just simply what happened in a series of events last week where people contradict each other you know in terms of a narrative truth uh, something that we have to work hard to get closer to beauty on the other hand I define as subjective, that it is something that is experienced within an individual person, and um, it is largely emotional in nature, in that it is, some, it is something, some, whether it's a piece of art, or it's something that you heard, or it's a person that you know, um, that creates a very positive feeling for you, or a feeling of great awe, something Mm -hmm. beyond words, but that uplifts you in some way. Um, So, and that is yours. You know, that is totally yours and you experience it in your own way. Um, So those are two entirely different things for me. Um, Would you say that that truth, so if uh, if beauty is primarily emotional, is would you say that truth for you is primarily intellectual? Well, you it, it can everything in your everything in your human experience, anything significant can carry some emotional weight. Uh, sure, in most cases it does, and what I've just described as truth can you know again produce feelings of everything from positive to negative actually because mm, the mm-hmm. truth just is what it is um truth can be delivered to you and it can be something that's a horrible terrible surprise yes it could be an insight into yourself you know that you've been trying to keep from yourself for years and so that in certain cases you know the emotion that goes with that piece of truth can be very negative or hard to deal with um, but it is what it is, basically. It, it exists as an absolute thing outside of, uh, outside of your subjective experience, which okay. you then try to get closer and closer to. 
I know that there are just like I believe that there are things that are beautiful but don't that don't feel like they have truth. In this case, if I'm thinking about I'm thinking about one particular show I saw, which was gorgeous and didn't seem to have any kind of real understanding of human nature in it mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. real portrayal of genuine human nature. Uh, so it was in the end a disappointing experience. But I also think you are absolutely right that there are truths that are absolutely ugly mm-hmm. and have nothing to do with anything that is beautiful. Well, so, the, the word about beauty that trips me up a lot is that beauty can be anything from very trivial mm-hmm. to something that's vast and spiritual and significant. All it has to do is push a button for you. Mm-hmm. You know, push a push a positive button. I mean, look at entertainment. You know, the field that we're in, as you were just saying, um, you can just enjoy the heck out of a, out of a reality show. <laughs> I'm working from one end of the spectrum, and uh, you can enjoy a great deal. You know, or a Shakespeare play, or a poem, or a, a great work of art on the other end of the spectrum, which brings a lot, which brings something of more lasting value, which, which feels like it has a truth to it as mm-hmm. well, which has something bigger than just the, the emotional button or the pleasing aesthetic button that is just pushed in your brain. Mm-hmm. Um, so beauty, I think, encompasses a very wide range of things because it can encompass any feeling or emotion or piece of taste or anything you've associated, you know, from your mm-hmm. past. You, you may find something beautiful, like a, I'll just pull something out of my own head, like a piece of uh, a gingham uh, check tablecloth. Well, maybe that's the kind of tablecloth that your grandmother had when you visited her, you know, 100 years ago, <laughs> whenever it was. <laughs> and so you find it beautiful for t- totally personal subjective reasons. Mm-hmm. So beauty can cover a huge range of things just within the one and just within the person that is, you know, experiencing it. Um, yeah. Whereas truth, I think is much more pres- prescribed. Now the one example, one exception to that, not to get too esoteric here, but I no, think please do. Our terms are very important here. Um, is that some people will point to um, laws of aesthetics, like the uh, golden ratio that's mm-hmm. used in visual arts and architecture. You know that's that um, can, that certain aspects of beauty can be defined. You know by formulas, by numbers, by quantitative um, relationship, and that's true. I guess. That t- for me, if, if you've got all of that in place, though, if you've got a perfectly proportioned building according to the ancient Greek, you know, formulas for such things, and it doesn't move you a bit, it doesn't stir anything, it just sits there and looks coldly correct. Pristine, yeah. Then that may or may not strike me as beautiful, you know, or, or anybody as beautiful, even though it follows all the rules. Um, whereas, say, a mathematical formula, <laughs> say, uh, you know, one of Einstein's equations or some of the things that have been come up with re- regarding quantum physics in the last 80 years, you know, that de- absolutely define an aspect of our reality in an absolutely irreducible form. Some people find that beautiful. And, and in a sense, it is. I mean, that in that it can't be reduced 
further down or expressed in any other way. Some people really get off on that. Mm -hmm. I would say that's closer to truth. That would be a truth thing, not a beauty thing for me personally, because mm-hmm. I think beauty is subjective. So anyway, there we well, go. <laughs> <laughs> and I just want to, one of the things that I'm doing with this podcast, I think, I, I know actually, is that I'm trying to find the intersection because I feel like the intersection of the things that are beautiful, the things that uplift us and and make us feel that emotional awe or joy or or love even the things that uplift us if it if it also grounds us in truth those are the things for me that are most powerful Mm -hmm. in a life and my thesis (laughs) if you will is that if we find those things for ourselves the, the intersection between beautiful and true and we find those things and we live into them that our lives take on a kind of purpose and mm-hmm. perhaps even meaning, although that might be over, overstating well, it. See, yeah, it's interesting because in my work as an advocate for the transgender community, and I am transgender for anybody that doesn't know me out there, um, I have to deal with both camps. I have to deal with the everyday harsh realities and yet as a theater artist, I also, you know, work with my usual bag of tricks as, uh, you know, serving beauty. And, uh, and, uh, and then when I go into a speech, for example, when I try to use my visual aids or my writing skills to communicate the real life aspects of transgender identity, I'm kind of pulling a little bit, you know, from both camps as well. Mm-hmm. But, um, but those are, yeah, again, I, I think it'd be a mistake to, uh, to confuse the delivery system with the actual content. The truth of the matter of being transgender has nothing at all to do with beauty in the usual sense, even though cisgender people, especially those that are into things like, you know, drag race and so on, they seem to be highly obsessed with the beauty aspect of the presentational aspect of trans people. And we can talk a little bit about that if you like. No, I I would love to. um, Because one of the things that I I started this doing some research into beauty, I wanted to find like academic studies about the effect of beauty on the brain and pleasure centers and, Mm -hmm. and how if there was influence on all kinds of things. I didn't even know what I was looking for. And the only studies I could find were about physical beauty and attractiveness in terms of like sexual attractiveness mm-hmm. and um, occasionally studies on if women wear makeup to the office, do they, do they get a higher salary? And all of that, I was so offended by the fact that that was all I could find. Mm-hmm. So I am but, very but interested in, in your experience of this. Well, but that study, that those kinds of studies speak to what I was talking about in that certain types of facial and physical features create a positive physical stimulus. And it's very physical in the viewer. Um, whether the viewer is male or female, whether, you know, the, what are the, what, whether the viewer is straight, say a straight guy looking at a female, 
or whether it's a straight woman looking at a female. There are certain aesthetic proportions. There are certain things wired into us for sexual fitness. And I think that's what some of our beauty standards, some of them, are based upon. Um, many of them also are, are frankly just linked back to being young. You know, the amount of collagen that gives you right. a nice smooth face and the full lips and the brightness of the eyes, the things that, you know, start to decline a lot after the age of 30. <laughs> and the, and the, and the, the, the uh, shoulder, shoulder to waist to hip ratio. Mm-hmm. And yeah, right. And, oh, and, that's, yeah, that's all gone for me. <laughs> Yeah, well, and, and what these are, they're basically, and those types of things that scientists study are basically biological markers, mm -hmm. things that, you know, over how, how thousands, if not millions of years have uh, been implanted in our brains to one degree or another to suggest that person would be a good mate. Even if, again, you know, that's not the gender that you're attracted to, at least to go, oh, okay. If you're a woman, say, looking at another woman, you go, wow, she would really, she's, she'd be good for bearing children. She will attract <laughs> men. And that, news is, that information is important to me because I may be competing against that woman with those physical traits that are considered attractive, considered good for breeding purposes, I guess you'd say. And then, of course, society steps in. Mm -hmm. and advertising and, you know, using sex and using attractiveness, using beauty, you know, to sell things. And then things go off in all sorts of other directions as well. Um, you know, for example, in the last few decades, being thin has been a big thing and advertisers are trying to promote that. And the main reason they do is because angular bodies and angular faces look better in photographs. In photographs. Mm -hmm. Right. Whereas before, when we weren't such a visually oriented culture, when you're in person, you know, if you say you're a man looking for a woman or, you know, it's what, how the woman feels, you know, Some, <laughs> someone with curves or somebody with, you know, that actually has breasts and hips, you know, that looks yes. like they would be a lot of fun. If you got I have, and, I have uh, heard it put very crassly, which I, I hesitate and I may cut this, but a friend of mine used to say, I want some cushion for the pushin. Yeah. Something to <laughs> hang on to. Yeah. Right. <laughs> But, 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 but this shows how, how standards of beauty can be manipulated. Oh, for sure. And twisted around. And, and the initial uh, standards that we were talking about, which are more or less just biological breeding markers, may not necessarily, you know, be what you consider beautiful in the person. Mm -hmm. You know, they're, they're, which takes into account, you know, their empathy, their ability to communicate, the sound of their voice. Uh, how well they connect with you and how well they connect with other people. These are, you know, intangibles, I guess, that feel very tangible when you're in person and when you're with somebody and that can really make somebody be beautiful, regardless, mm -hmm. you know, of what the ratio of the distance between their eyes versus the distance between their eyes and their mouth is or whatever. If and, their face uh, is perfectly symmetrical, I've heard that that's one of the, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so beauty, I think, again, is, it's a very strong thing because it is based entirely in emotion, but it's a very unreliable thing mm -hmm. um, in terms of anything universal, in terms of anything, frankly, 
that has a lot of significance in the big picture in real life compared to truth. But there is definitely a tension between the two and a tendency to confuse one for the other. Oh, yes. Which is kind of what I was trying to get at in our right. emails here. <laughs> right. No. Um... Oh, know, let's talk about, let's talk about what I what I can talk about. I can let's okay. just use the whole idea about trans, <laughs> transgender presentation and why y'all cis people are so enamored of any trans woman that looks like a real woman, as you know, <laughs> they, that's the term you know that you would hear uh, that that can pass as yes. a cisgender woman. Well, <laughs> you know, it's it's it's. This, that's a complicated question, but basically the closer a trans woman gets to following the same rules of beauty that a cis woman does, then that makes makes us less threatening. You can go, oh, okay, well, that person may have been born a male, but look, they've got nice, big, sparkly eyes. They know how to put their makeup on. They've got nice, long hair. Uh, they wear that dress well. Um, they've got narrow shoulders. <laughs> <laughs> you know, these are accidents of biology mm -hmm. talking here. And, um, and I see that whether through the surgical skill or the hormones, they've developed, you know, some breasts, they look familiar, they push the familiar buttons for female beauty. Whereas, let's say a trans woman that, like myself, has broad shoulders, a big nose, that I have long hair, which is sort of in good shape, but I have a very male hairline. That looks unfamiliar. That only, not only doesn't really push the buttons for female beauty that we expect, it doesn't even push the buttons for female. Hmm. The brain looks at that person and goes, what is that? I don't understand. And whenever we don't understand something, especially visually, especially a, a trait like gender, where we, we've been trained to sort into two distinct columns, male or female, if we see something that doesn't sort into those columns, that doesn't look familiar, we treat it as a threat. The amygdala starts going bing, bing, bing in the brain, and you pull back a bit. And that is unfortunate, but that is a fact. And it's a fact that I think every a transgender person ignores at their peril, for one thing. Um, and it happens in everybody. It happens in the most liberal, accepting person that's got a ton of transgender <laughs> friends. And it happens in, you know, people that don't have any transgender friends, don't accept us on any principle that thinks we're Satan's spawn, et cetera, et cetera. It happens in everybody. And um, the need to be passable ameliorates that. It kind of gets past that objection a little bit. So um, that is one reason, not the only reason, but one reason why trans people do undertake, and I'm talking about binary trans people, those that mm -hmm. identify as male or female, not as non-binary. But if you are identifying as male or female and you're a trans person, it's simply safer to walk through the world because you're not triggering everybody's amygdalas all over the place because you don't you don't sort so radically outside the male or female columns and if uh 
if people look at you and feel less threatened by you, they're friendlier, they'll listen to you, they'll get to know you, they'll get to appreciate the true beauty in you, which is, you know, your personality, your ability to connect, your ability to express yourself. And, uh, and then you can actually move through the world like a human being. So passing, in a sense, is a ticket. It's a to safety being, ticket. It's, it's a, a safety, safety ticket, ticket and also a, a connection ticket. Okay. It's a ticket to not being excluded, is the way I like to put it. I think it is ironic that trans women are expected to hold up to a higher standard of traditional female beauty than then most it, cisgender females are. Right. I mean, most cisgender females, by virtue of their, the thinness of their neck, the narrowness of their shoulders, the timbre of their voice, their hairlines, they can wear the crappiest clothes. They can come in just rolled out of bed. They can be 80 years old. And immediately, we can identify them as female. Mm -hmm. And we do not get triggered by, you know, they easily sort into one of the two columns. Whereas a young, healthy transgender woman, by virtue of having slightly wider shoulders, maybe a slightly thicker neck, maybe a more male hairline, you know, they mm -hmm. have to work 20 times as hard to sort into the column that goes, oh, I see, that person is female. That's, that's a very hard truth that well, you're talking about. Is, it is a hard truth and it there, applies to everybody, not just to, uh, not just to the biggest. Right. And that's part of what makes it so hard. And I'm, I'm sitting here wondering if you think there's, if it's such a biological response, is there any way to combat that? Is there any way to, what do you think? Well, I don't think you combat it. First of all, I think you acknowledge it and you look at square in the eye. Mm. Um, one thing I like to do when I'm meeting people for the first time, whether it's just a bank teller or whether it's, you know, a friend of a friend that I will actually maybe have a relationship with, a friendship with later on is bring it up. Hey, you know, well, gosh, you know, when I was transitioning a few years ago, boom, you've broken the subject. You've, you've, you've acknowledged the elephant in the room. I see. Instead of pretending that I'm not trans, instead of pretending that I should easily sort for you into one of those two familiar gender columns, I acknowledge, okay, I'm, I'm somebody who went from column A to column B, okay? Just doing that can really help reduce the anxiety, the, uh, the sense of dysphoria that actually mm -hmm. the person watching experiences. Um, the sense of something isn't right here. As soon as you reset the context, things go a lot better. Now, if the person you're talking to happens to be, you know, somebody who's very judgmental against transgender people, or has only knows transgender people through the usual things, which are the news or porn, <laughs> right? Then they're still going to have problems with you. And in that case, then you just take it to the next level. You know, you start to be maybe a little more charming, a little more friendly, a little more connecting. You listen, or you do the things that you already do with just as a human being in the world to connect better. I mean, people, you know, maybe when they see you, they go, oh, okay, well, you're liberal or, oh, you're not blonde. Or, I mean, people make judgments all over the place that we have to overcome, right? Yes. Well, 
you know, this is just one more thing, perhaps, for some people. But to ignore that people are prejudiced against you because you're not blonde or because you're a certain age or a certain height or who knows what, and just plow right through as if you're entitled to a free pass with every single person, I think that's unrealistic. Hmm. I mean, that it really is. And so what I, what I, in my talks about gender is I just want people to be aware of the process, be aware of their own prejudices, if that's mm -hmm. the right word, their own built-in sorting machine. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, if you're a trans person, I will say, look, you know, this, this exists in all people. Don't pretend it's not there. Don't pretend that, you know, just because y'all have been on Facebook and you've got a bunch of woke friends that everybody should just give you a free pass. It isn't going to happen. And this is where truth <laughs> may not intersect with beauty. Is it no. beautiful that we, you know, have that sort of built-in sorting mechanism and prejudice that has to be overcome? Um, no, but it is true. And if we acknowledge that truth and we find a way to work through it as human beings to connect and, you know, to, uh, make, to live our truth in the world and have, eventually people will appreciate it, hopefully, then we stand a better chance of having our beauty be seen, mm -hmm. right? And so I think both truth and beauty are, one way I'd like to put it is that truth is Truth is, a, an, a, is an objective thing, but our attitude towards truth has to be a verb. We mm. have to always be working towards it. Beauty just is. We experience it. We don't have to really think about it. We don't have to do anything other than lay back and goes, wow, that thing is beautiful. That poem is beautiful. That song is beautiful. And just bathe in it. Maybe, maybe, or... I have certainly had experiences where there were things that uh, things that I did not find beautiful at first, mm -hmm. and as I gave them my attention, usually somebody made me give my attention to them, um, mm. and I I started looking at the details and perhaps how it was crafted. I think I'm thinking about mm -hmm. a poem now. That it became beautiful over time, so I do believe that there are there are beauties that grab us immediately yes. and, and captivate us and take our breath away immediately. And then there are the beauties that sneak up on us. And mm -hmm. it's, it's often because we are giving, we are investing in, in something and giving it our attention. I'd say the same thing is true of me as well. Um, just my, my journey in art, for example, I started out as an artist. I was yes, drawing, drawing I did little... not know that. I'm yes, sorry. I'm yes. gonna, I'm, I did oh, not I know was... that until you sent me that email. And I was like, really? That's yeah. so cool? That's amazing. Oh, I was drawing little stick figures on the wall before I could even talk. <laughs> in, in crayon, nonetheless. Yeah. Um, and uh, my, my bent was always towards naturalism, towards realism. And, uh, you know, it took me a while to really, uh, I guess, appreciate, is that the right word? Things like abstract expressionism mm -hmm. and, you know, art that doesn't draw directly from outside you know what you see but is more concerned with creating a feeling inside of you mm -hmm. shall we say um and that was a journey for me um but what makes the thing beautiful regardless of the path that i took to get there 
is just a gut level feeling and a very emotional response. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> there, there's definitely a tension between the two things. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, no, I, 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 I do acknowledge that. Um, and that's part you, of that's part of why I'm why I'm doing this podcast is that as I talk to people about this, I'm learning about it. And mm-hmm. I have not found any way to talk about either of these things, particularly directly. I have to talk around them through metaphor and these kinds of conversations. And I, I actually think this is why we have art Mm -hmm. because we, we, most of us can't talk about them directly. Yeah. 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 Art, art does, does reach in through a different channel into some really deep fundamental parts of the human experience and art that is a performing art gets reinforced by the fact that other people are experiencing that same thing in the same room with you mm-hmm. as, as an audience member and also as an artist up on stage. Everybody participates in this wonderful sort of elevating experience that we have. Um, are you familiar with the Heinlein novel, Stranger in a Strange Land? I, I, I know of it. I have never read it. If I use the word grok, does that make any sense to you? It, you know what? It's, it, you, it will if you give it just a tiny <laughs> bit of explanation. I'm, like it's, it's on the tip of my brain. I'm like, I know, I know what this is and I can't recall it because I haven't experienced the novel. Well, Heinlein creates a world where there are, uh, where basically beauty is an absolute. Mm. And that it can be perceived not only by different human beings, but by different species as well. And the name for appreciating, for processing something that's truthfully beautiful, beautifully truthful, is grok. <laughs> it's grok, yes, okay. I mean, you can use, you can sort of substitute the word understand. You know, I grokked that piece of art. I understood it or I appreciated it. But it's a much more profound word than like, either understand or appreciate. It means truly, fully, with every fiber of your being. Bone deep. Yeah. Bone deep. You just, be, you are tapping into the truth of that beautiful thing. I grok that. What a and terrible word for that. <laughs> totally. Well, you know, science fiction. Grok. <laughs> Everything sounds like Klingon, right? <laughs> oh, that is so true sometimes. And uh, that was a fascinating book for me to read when I was uh, 12 years old or something like that. And it kind of it kind of spoke to me, you know, as a young budding artist. Um, that, yeah, you know, there is something out there that art reaches for that feels so true. It, it at the very least feels universal among human beings. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, whether that's universal in the, with a big U, you know, among <laughs> all species, among all planets, and in any bigger sense, it's one thing. But yeah, we reach for certain things. Um, what I do with my work with identity. Yes, uh, I was hoping that you would segue into that. Yay. Yeah, is, is that there are certain aspects of human identity that are universal. Um, and I'm not just talking about gender identity. I'm talking about just identity and the way I define identity is the story you tell yourself about yourself mm-hmm. that it is an ongoing narrative and it's comprised not just from what you're told you know like the doctor tells you you're male or female by looking between your legs um, but that is part of it 
Um, but it is also a result of every experience you've ever had, um, everything that you've been taught by your parents, everything that you've just experienced, uh, you know, gr growing up. And the third component besides your body and your experience is your synthesis, what you have personally constructed from mm -hmm. all these many, 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 many different experiences of your own body and things coming from outside of you as well. And uh, this makes it dynamic, constantly evolving and changing, and it makes it incredibly personal. We could look at certain aspects of identity that are just given us, you know, like your driver's license <laughs> and, uh, you know, your uh, other identity documents, for mm -hmm. example, your passport and so on. Things where we are told this is who you are, but we know that that's a tiny sliver of who we really are, of, of the picture we've created of ourselves, of the story that we've created of ourselves. And we know that that story is going to change. If, if you could go back and suddenly put yourself into the body and mind of little five-year-old Jen, would you even feel like you're the same person? I mean, now, if I could take myself now and put mm -hmm. myself in that body? Do a, do a brain meld. Do a yeah. Vulcan mind meld. <laughs> oh, no. I got to say, five-year-old Jen was much cooler than I am. <laughs> she was amazing. <laughs> Tell me about that. Why cooler? <laughs> um, because she did not care what anybody thought about her ever mm. um, for at least a year. I wore nothing but really frilly dresses like oh. with taffeta and stuff and patent leather shoes. And if I wasn't wearing that, I was probably wearing some costume that I'd thrown together from some old shirts and mm -hmm. Something I remember uh, something that was stripy and seemed kind of like a robe. And I used to play Old Testament pretend because I was a weird kid. But I didn't know <laughs> I was a weird kid. I was just me running around doing my thing. Yeah. Um, and I vaguely recall that. I vaguely recall how that child felt. And I was like, ah, oh, looking back on it, like that child was so cool. And not in any, not in mm. any like traditional word, use of the word cool. <laughs> Clearly, yeah. she was but would you, would, would you say that that's you? Would you say, wow, that's an entirely different person than I am now or mostly different person? No, no, she's still in there. And mm. so, but, but I would say that but the my identity of has... being you, that's what I'm trying to say. Yes, the experience exactly. of being you would be incredibly different, right? Because young Jen, she had a sense of, she just had a sense of herself, mm -hmm. of not being unedited, of being pure. Mm. of just kind of t coming totally from within, right? And a sense of power to her there. Yes, that, unedited. Yeah. I really like that. Unedited. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because as we age, we do edit ourselves. And I, I think the better term for that is we construct ourselves. Mm -hmm. we, we construct an ego self. Uh, I, I buy into these psychological terms very much. And I think your, your ego is like a shield. Mm -hmm. It's both an image that you present for other people so that you can fit in, so that you can connect, so that you, you know, can rub everybody the right way. And it's also a shield that has a mirror on the inside. Mm -hmm. And the ego tells us things about ourselves that we want to believe about ourselves. 
what the mirror image is facing in isn't necessarily the same as the image going out and we're okay about that because we can usually discriminate between you know the, the message that we're hopefully sending out to the world and the one that we're sending back to ourselves. but there's another truer you that's actually looking at that mirror and you can call that the id you can call that the self with a capital s that realizes that you know there's that there's that the shield both sides of it are still a construct and that the part of you that's really you when all the chips are down when you're under great stress when everything gets stripped away is something else entirely and that part of identity is what really interests me as well because when people talk about trans people they think it's just the shield they think it's just what we're showing to other people it's an act it's fake or maybe just the mirror part that we're trying to tell ourselves oh you know they're not really a woman they're just trying to tell themselves they are when in fact transgender identity as all key parts of a personal identity is quite real and it is quite true and when all the chips are down and all the bullshit is set aside and when, when we're living like five-year-old jen <laughs> <laughs> we know that it's there and that it's true and that it's authentic and mm -hmm. that the real falsehood the real fake part of the story was when the shield had the gender we were assigned at birth written on it and the mirror facing into ourselves that we tried so hard to believe also was an image of what we were assigned at birth uh, those were the false narratives those were the false images um, and i'm trying to explain through metaphor and through these images again using our, our artistic means here to describe what i hope are universal things for people you know to describe this in a way that will you know ring a bell with people so and maybe make this whole gender thing gender identity thing seem less foreign um, identity is a complicated thing but we all do it we all mm -hmm. construct it and it doesn't have just to do with gender either it has to do or even just your sexual preference that's another thing mm -hmm. you know um, it has to do with your values the things that you find important in the world, the things that you find right or wrong in the world, the things that you find beautiful in the world, mm -hmm. just instinctively, just boom, without even thinking about it, boom, that is beautiful, that is ugly, that is right, that is wrong, that's important, that's not important. These are part of our core identity and they've been constructed from our biological self and our social self and that third thing that very personal subjective process of synthesis and it's very real and very true it's just as true for us as your identity is for you as a cisgender person for example mm -hmm. so do you think as i'm listening and it is ringing bells for me do you think that at some level we want the the mirror on the shield Mm -hmm. and the the deeper true self do we want the mirror to reflect the deeper true self or is that not necessary well for some of us it does you know we can really look at ourselves so to say you know in this projected mirror image uh completely and brutally honestly 
And in some cases, we just can't. I mean, Tennessee Williams, the plays of Tennessee mm. Williams, I think are a beautiful exercise in that. Um, what, what is that quote from the Glass Menagerie? This play is about truth and the pleasant disguise of illusion. Mm-hmm. And he was referring to the truth that you tell yourself as an illusion, you know, that we need our illusions to get through life. That if we looked at ourselves, like like Blanche Dubois in Streetcar Named mm-hmm. Desire is forced to look at herself finally by the end of the play under the harsh, detailed light of that naked light bulb by Stanley. Mm-hmm. And she can't do it. I mean, it makes her crack. It, it, it ends what little tenuous grasp on reality she had because she needed, she needed. <laughs> she needed the mirror <laughs> to looked, reflect. Something she needed that the was... mirror to be the image that she constructed as a little debutante when she was 18 years old and she had every bow in the South eaten out of her hand. She wasn't able to grow beyond that self-image to integrate, you know, the, the other aspects of being a human. It's, it's a good question. I think it varies with the, with the person. I think it varies with their circumstances. I mean, we have good days. You know, where we can live up to that image that we aspire to of ourselves. And some days where we know darn well we're not anywhere we're near. Not. <laughs> I never have those days ever. Not oh, ever. Me neither. <laughs> right. Everybody else, but not the two of us. <laughs> yeah. And what, what makes humans so interesting is that we not only go through this complex identity uh, dynamic for ourselves, we have a very keen sense of what other people are doing. Mm-hmm. We can see, oh, that person, well, this is what they're pretending to be. This is the part of the shield that's facing inward that they want to be, but what they really are behind the shield entirely is something else. And then you, then you attribute motives and so on to, well, why are they representing themselves as this? Or why are they hoping to be something that we know that they're really not? I mean, and these are part of what we just lump blandly under the whole thing of social skills, mm-hmm. right? It's our ability to read the whole the whole storytelling process in other people mm-hmm. and our you've evolved that pretty keen sense for survival i mean social dynamics is a very keen part of who we are but what that has to do with the way we present ourselves is that we know how other people are reading us and that matters to us mm-hmm. little five-year-old john and probably even more so, a little two- and three-year-old Jen could give a shit about that. <laughs> and didn't. No, you just no. a presence in the world because you hadn't had any consequences yet. Right, and, and I can tell you exactly <laughs> what the consequences were. I went oh, to kindergarten, yeah. and fairly quickly, I remember we were going down a ramp into the gymnasium, and there was a little boy behind me. And for several days in a row, I don't know if we were, we must've been lined up in kind of the same order. He would grab my skirt and lift it up. And he thought (laughs) it was hilarious. And honestly, it was hilarious. I'm sure (laughs) it was not hilarious to me. It was deeply humiliating. And I decided that I was never going to wear frilly things ever again. And I didn't Uh, wear skirts. I didn't wear skirts for years. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, that was that again. That was, that was your 
That was your synthesis of what your body was, what your emotions told you to be. And then you had this experience. The outside world was going, okay, yeah, if you behave like that, this is what's going to happen to you. Your synthesis was, well, I'm not going to wear those clothes anymore. That's mm -hmm. a very simple part of one aspect of your identity, which may have ramifications for the rest of your identity. You it know? did. I mean, yeah. I, I, I wonder what would have happened if that little girl, instead of choosing not to wear dresses anymore, had just turned around and decked him. Mm. <laughs> and I'm not suggesting that we should use violence as an answer, but I, I wonder who no, that, that little girl would have... Yeah. Mm -hmm. it would have been a different experience and she would have grown up as a slightly different person yeah maybe maybe quite 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 likely yeah yeah um so yeah i'm sorry go ahead oh no no go ahead please no i'm i'm gonna go off on another little sidebar <laughs> well i wanted to ask you and i want to be respectful of your time um i wanted to ask you about your project because you're working on a project about identity yes mm -hmm. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Well, it started out as your typical transgender 101 lecture, which was basically explaining, you know, explaining to cisgender people what the terms meant, uh, binary, non-binary, transgender, cisgender, etc. Um, explaining why transgender people are there. Have we always been here? Have we not? I mean, just kind of laying out what the the simple facts are the the truths are of transgender people as they are now and as they have always been mm -hmm. and as well as this is how you can help um moving through the world these are the pronouns you can use these are what you can do to make a safe space for us in your world because it is your world we're less than one percent of the population and so on and so forth. In other words, this was a straightforward lecture. Mm -hmm. And then I had a series of events happen to me last year and that convinced me that that wasn't enough. Mm. That it is all well and good for people that already accept us or that probably already know at least 50%, you know, of what I was talking about. But that it isn't really getting to the heart of things. And uh, it occurred to me that, well, what we need to talk about here is everyone's identity and not just gender identity. We need to talk about that story that everyone tells themselves about themselves or in the metaphor that we've been using here, the image that we you know, construct for other people and for ourselves over the course of our life. And uh, I thought, well, gee, what credentials do I have for that? <laughs> I'm, an, I'm an actor. I've spent my whole life creating others' identities. <laughs> yes. What credentials? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, you I have... I deal in identities. Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> I mean, particularly as an actor. I mean, you're taking the basic uh, evidence from the script that the playwright's given you, and you'll, you'll take a, you know, a few extra nuances from the director to make sure that you're always, you know, honoring that script. But you have to create a three-dimensional, fully fleshed out, psychologically authentic and real human being out of those scraps of information. So identity is our business. Identity, body and soul, not just behavior, mm -hmm. not just a funny way of walking or a different accent, 
but something that to the viewer feels true. Maybe not beautiful, but, but mm -hmm. true. Uh, and or as the word we would use authentic mm -hmm. same like same thing and I thought okay why don't I take my knowledge of building an identity because that's what we do as actors and my experience as a transgender person and talk about identity in its truest broadest deepest sense something that everybody can relate to and understand but the overall idea here, the guiding principles are identity is complicated. Identity, just like beauty, is entirely an experience of the individual. It is subjective, not objective. Mm -hmm. Even though people <laughs> say, this is you, this is your driver's license, this is you, who you are. Well, that's not true. Identity isn't handed to you. It is something you create. And it is sacrosanct. And if you tell somebody that's not you, well, good luck with that because <laughs> that's not your job, you know? I mean, um, identity is something we all create for ourselves. And I'm hoping that uh, this program I'm putting together will make that clear over time and uh, maybe, you know, open people's eyes to themselves first and to the story they've been telling themselves about themselves. And in the process, maybe eventually have a better idea of what transgender is and mm -hmm. why it is such an important and such a true thing for us. Because if everybody is examining, you know, constructed identi identity as well as, you know, the nature of a true self, then everybody's identity becomes unique and kind of exactly the same level of strange. If yeah, you really get into it. So then everybody, everybody is, you don't have to be afraid necessarily of anybody because of their identity or their identity expression, because all of us are doing the same thing all the time. We just don't think about it. We get to take it for granted. Well, yeah. Interesting. I mean, that, that, that's, my, that's my thesis anyway. And, uh, but because we are social animals and we do live, you know, where other people are constantly looking at us, judging us, evaluating us, wanting to get close to us maybe, you know, in a relationship or wanting to determine if we've got the, you know, what it takes to do a job, to assume certain responsibilities, et cetera, et cetera. We also have to be aware that who we are to ourselves, that, that sacrosanct treasured nugget of truth in ourselves is only part of our identity. That identity is also how you reach out to other people, how you mm -hmm. connect with them, of the uh, from everything from the superficial things like the appearance you present, to uh, the words you use, to mm -hmm. um, how much empathy you give them. I mean, these are all identity is is a very big thing. I mean, it's 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 really you. It's everything you are. Um, and everything that you want to be and are trying to be. Mm. That's a lot of stuff and it's a big subject. That's a big project. Yeah. So um, I'm kind of grateful that I've had these extra months to, uh, to ponder mm -hmm. and as well as, you know, to kind of uh, figure out how I'm going to get this across to people. So thank you for giving me a chance to 
to talk about that today. Oh, you're welcome. And if I end up having 10,000 listeners, I'll bring you back and you can, talk about, you can talk about it again at length. And that will be my thank you for doing this when I'm still young and uh, with not, not 10,000 listeners. So you brought, up, you brought up something a couple of times that you're talking about um, identity and you linked it a couple of times to your driver's license. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have a feeling that, that and I, I feel like I'm wading into kind of treacherous waters here, but I, I was wondering about, as a trans person, I was listening to a podcast with another, another person talking about trying to get, I think it was in Costa Rica, a, a, a trans man in, in Costa Rica trying to get the, his name changed on the driver's license. Mm-hmm. And having to go to court, and and I was and I, so I'm sitting here thinking about that, which I just listened to, gosh, yesterday, and thinking about how I just kind of take it for granted. The only thing on my driver's license that has ever felt weird to me is the weight category, because it's mm. not quite accurate these days. Mm, neither is mine. <laughs> I don't think anybody's is. Very few people. <laughs> um. So, and, and I was wondering, one of the questions I sent you was about, about your name. Mm-hmm. Again, my name is something that I kind of take for granted. It, mm-hmm. was, it was given to me by my parents. I don't actually care that much about it one way or the other. Mm-hmm. I don't love it. I don't dislike it. It feels, it's a thing that people call me and I understand it. Mm-hmm. Right. But when, if you're a trans person, very often you end up choosing a new name. Mm-hmm. Are you willing? Are you willing to talk about that experience at all? Oh yeah, actually, I've written about that on a blog post. That when I first came out to the world in 2011, I I described that whole thing. I'll tell it to you here as well. Um, yeah, the whole decision about changing my name just came across almost in a serendipitous way. The center on Halstead, our local LGBT center was hosting a, um, an event with the uh, DMV, or we call it whatever, what's, what do we call it in, in Illinois, our Secretary of State, whatever. Secretary, Secretary of State, State Office, maybe? Yeah. And what they were offering is they were offering a, a state ID in your, the agenda that you identified as. Now that's, which is to say, let's say that you are a trans woman, I'll speak to my own experience and you get dressed up as a female and you go out for the evening and you run a red light. Mm -hmm. Cop pulls you over and they're looking at you with a little flashlight in your eyes. And then they look down at this driver's license. Well, there's, they're getting two different stories there, right? If the driver's license has your gender assigned at birth, and if it has your name signed at birth, then they're going to see a male name and they're going to see a female representation. Cops don't like that. <laughs> the thing about basic identity documents is they need to be consistent mm-hmm. <laughs> with you know, the truth of the situation. So the state of Illinois was offering these state IDs. They're not good for much. I don't think you could use them to like cash a check, but they were something to carry along. And they were something that uh, law enforcement was told that they could also ask for. So in other words, I could go in dressed as, you know, my female 
presentation, but still keep my old boy name on my driver's license. I showed the cop both pieces of ID, boom, you know, I'm, I'm good to go. So I was just going to go in and get my state ID with my female presentation and some sort of a female name on it, right? You didn't have it picked out before you went? Not really, no. <laughs> so uh, I go up there and uh, there was a transgender woman uh, that was, uh, you know, kind of processing people there before you went over to the DMV to get your picture taken. And she looked at me and went, why the hell are you getting this? I said, what? Why aren't you just changing your name and just getting an actual driver's license and a passport, you know, in a female name? And I didn't have an answer for her. At that point, I'd been on hormones for a few years. I had been out only to a very, very few trusted friends, but I knew that I was female and I knew that eventually this is what you do, you know? Mm -hmm. You start presenting and identifying yourself as who you are. So I was said, uh, okay. She says, right upstairs, we have a bank of computers. Wow. And, and I'm gonna, and what I'm gonna do, here's the, here's the, here's the uh, link, you go there and it will walk you through like kind of what it was like 40 some different screens of the process to get your name changed. And this was just a legal name change. This would be uh, submitting to uh, what Cook County Circuit Court for a change of name. And the whole process would take between two and three months, she explained, but we could get started on it today. She says, I am even a notary public. I will even, <laughs> I will even notarize, you know, the initial documents that we have to print out right here as well. And this woman I, changed your kind of changed your well, life on the fly. Well, it's cer she certainly sped things up a bit. <laughs> I mean, just as a little sidebar on this, I was huh, I was already having enough breast growth that it was getting very hard to hide my gender from my family and my friends. And mm -hmm. so, it, well, I was <laughs> I was I pushed things about as far as I could on the waiting. So anyway, I go up there, and one of the first screens is. What, what name are you changing yourself to? This is who you've been for the last 50 years. Who are you going to be? And I didn't know what to put. I had, had a few ideas. I'd used a few names when I was back in my cross-dresser days. You know, when you go online, you have to have a female name. But I thought, okay, uh, to kind of do the short version of this story, what you want as a trans person is you want a name that tells the story. This is who I was, this is who I am. Well, I wanted something old, something that continued. I mean, I kept, you keep your last name just because it makes, makes life a lot simpler. Most of us keep our last name. My middle name, as my dead name was Murray, you know, like Murray, M-U-R-R-A-Y. Mm -hmm. And my grandmother's middle name on my dad's side was Marie. Hmm. So I thought that would be a nice way to honor my grandmother. And it sounds almost identical. That was good. Middle name, Marie. So I need something Marie crop. And I kind of wanted to keep my first initial the same. Partly so I could keep my email address. <laughs> but also... Hey. That's, that's, a, that's a real thing. Well, and you keeps your initials. You know, again, a sense of continuity. Because you mm -hmm. are the same human being. Right. But I didn't want to choose, well, my mom's name began with a D. I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to just, you know, 
I say, look, I'm now my mother now. Um, and uh, I came up with two names that to me didn't have a past, didn't have any other associations, didn't have any other stories that would, I would be dragging into my story all these other associations. And one of the names was Delia. The only Delias I knew about, one was like a B-movie actress, Delia Shepard, and the other one was uh, Delia Derbyshire, I think her name is, that wrote the Doctor Who theme and was an early pioneer in synthesizers in the 60s. I said, okay, well, yeah, that's, Delia is a fairly clean slate. And the other one was Dagne, and it's D-A-G-N-E. It's Ooh. Norwegian, I believe, and it means new day or dawn. And I thought, oh, the poetry of that. This is a new day for me. It's a new dawn. And so I went out on the internet and I did a quick search. Well, guess what the protagonist of uh, Atlas Shrugged, I think it is, one of the Ayn Rand novels is. <gasps> That's, <Dogmatic>. right. <laughs> That's right. That's right. No, I, you can't do that. <laughs> no, no, no. I might as well call myself Hecuba. <laughs> Oh, so no. I said, okay, Delia it is then. <laughs> so that that's how not, I ended up with Delia, yeah. <laughs> I didn't know the story, and I think I had a vision in my head of what it might be, and that is not anything like what I was expecting. Yeah, the idea is here delightful is, to, me. Is, to some degree, you want a sense of continuity, I think mm -hmm. most trans people do. Uh, but to a large degree, you know, you're reinventing yourself and you don't want, you don't want to take a name of that, that little girl you knew in third grade that always picked her nose or you didn't, or the teacher you know, in 12th grade that, you know, hit you with the rule. Or you want to start out with a, a clean slate. Continuity, but no baggage. Yeah. Yeah. In a, in a phrase. That exactly makes sense it. to me. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm going to ask you two more questions, both of them fairly quick. One of the questions I sent was, is there a, is, can you tell me about a moment of beauty sometime in your life that it's absolutely stopped you totally in your tracks? Uh, there, there are actually several and they're all very hard to describe because it's just how it made me feel, not so right. much what it was. Um, um, and there are things, you know, that other people have identified on this show, you know, looking up in the sky at night and just feeling an unbelievable sense that you and that sky, that universe up there are one and the same thing. And I'm not a religious person. This has nothing to do with God or anything that you might call spiritual. But the feeling, <laughs> the sense of beauty and just wonderful, awe-inspiring beauty was the same. Carl Jung has a really interesting uh, phrase. He says, most of us are not looking for meaning. Most of us are looking for the sense of being alive. And it's those moments that just overwhelm you with a sense of something not just bigger than yourself, but that you are also part of that bigness that I think you feel most alive. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, we, we go for little shortcuts, you know, like, uh, you know, our fifth drink or, you know, our sex or um, the accolades of other people. 
you know, or making a lot of money. These things that we think are, they're just status things really, but they make us, we think, feel more alive. But one, one experience like, like I've just described, or looking down into a pool of water and just the unbelievable sense of mystery and beauty down there in the depths, those are the those are the moments that make you feel that you are truly alive. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I don't think I have anything original to really add on that. I can't think of anything that people would go, "Wow, I've never heard of that before." <laughs> no, and the fascinating thing is that uh, what I've done twelve, I think twelve interviews now, and the same themes keep coming up, and they are nature or sometimes often family mm-hmm. or um very often even if we're not talking about god or religion or even spirituality there is a sense of something and i think you're describing it i would call that sacred even if it's detached from god or some kind of mm-hmm. deity there's something that feels holy to yeah, me, even the way you're describing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, in the old, I think that's one reason that, that we came up with something called religion or spiritual is that there is so much that we can sense that we cannot really describe, mm-hmm. that we cannot understand, but we want to be able to hold that and communicate it and share it with other people, whether it's the joy of a, a new child. I'm not a parent, but I, I get what that would be like to suddenly have a new human being in the world. Where do, how does this happen? How does it look like me? I mean, you can understand all the genetics in the world, but it's still a miracle. It's still it something that you sense and you experience and you cannot explain why it feels so amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, oh, I seriously could talk to you for four hours. But you sent me a picture. Mm-hmm. Like, like I ask everybody to do. Um, mm-hmm. Do you want me to do, do you want me to describe it a little bit? Or would you like to? Sure. You go ahead. So it is a picture of a painting in a frame. And it the painting is of Rembrandt. Rembrandt. It's a self-portrait. Mm-hmm. And it is a lovely painting. But tell me why you picked it. Rembrandt was one of my idols when I was growing up. I, my specialty, what I really, really enjoyed most and was best at was portraiture. Um, and through my teen years, I used to draw portraits of people. And I used to just really, really enjoy it. And the reason I did... I think I knew this even at the time was that that's like peering into somebody's soul. Mm -hmm. If it's a good portrait and that's what art was. Art wasn't doing an Andy Warhol. Let's, let's make an image you can put on a tomato soup can a hundred times. It was peering into the reality of somebody's identity. Mm -hmm. I was just thinking that. A sense of self in a very intimate, immediate, almost naked way. And to do a self-portrait, <laughs> that means turning the mirror back on yourself. And I think a good self-portrait isn't just the metaphor that I've talked about, where it's that mirror inside of the shield, the part that we want to see. 
It's really looking at the person behind the shield. It's dropping the shield entirely. And I sensed that even at the age of what was like 18 at the time. And I sensed that that was what I wanted to do. Uh, as soon as I got into college, I just got fed up with what it took to be an artist and <laughs> everything. So, but I realized that's what you're doing when you're an actor. You mm -hmm. are using the raw materials of yourself and then constructing from the ground up a whole human being from that and hopefully in a very honest, almost, well, <laughs> almost naked way. I mean, one of my ro first roles I played professionally was Alan in Equest and there actually was a nude scene where you are psychologically nude. <laughs> and also and, physically nude, I believe. Physically nude at the same time. So there was a lot of continuity you know between what i thought of as real art painting art drawing art representational art and what i did uh, in uh, theater mm -hmm. so that picture was kind of like an epiphany for me and i actually did a rendering of it in pastels and uh it's the only piece of art that i've kept the only the only one yeah. you've kept Everything else either was submitted for a school project or it was a gift. I gave away almost all of my stuff or I, I sold a few things. This is the only one I've actually kept. So for me, the truth that that artist was able to face and process and then had the craft to communicate to other people was beauty. Mm -hmm. He's not beautiful in that painting. He's old, he's gouty, he's mm -hmm. way overweight. You can tell he's, and he was, he was, fairly close to the end when he painted that and uh, was not an attractive man by any standards of beauty before or since. But his, his raw honesty yep. with himself and with his viewers, the trust, I guess, he placed in his viewers to see him right down to his soul was just breathtaking for me. Mm. So that's why that. Thank you. Thank you okay. for sharing that. And thank you for, for doing this, for having this conversation. It was thought provoking on so many levels and I, I enjoyed it thoroughly and I'm sure my listeners will too. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity, Jen. I want to thank Delia so much for talking with me and for sharing her stories and her deep and wonderful insights. You can find out more about Delia and her work at her website, and I love this name, therealdelia.com. How great is that? Before I sign off, I want to say this. I'm finding myself overwhelmed with gratitude for all my guests and their unique and wonderful perspectives. One of the great gifts for me that is giving me hope in a time that it feels pretty dark sometimes is getting to hear how truly singular we all are, and simultaneously, how very much we have in common. It's hard to hate anyone who is talking openly about the things that are beautiful and true in their lives. It's vulnerable and joyful and sad and funny, and I wish we could all have these kinds of conversations all the time. The world would be a much better place if we did. As always, thank you for listening. And if you like what you hear, find us on iTunes and subscribe. Search for The Beautiful and True Project.
And if you really like what you hear, tell a friend about us. I hope that listening inspires you to focus on the beautiful and true in your own life. We'll talk again next Sunday. Have a great week.